Welcome back to The Headache Situation. I'm Edmund Messina, MD, the cynical yet optimistic doctor at the Michigan Headache and Neurology Clinic in East Lansing, Michigan. We have pioneered the use of virtual visits for headache patients, and we serve patients from all over Michigan. Now, here's the disclaimer. The content of these podcasts is made available for informational and educational purposes only. Remember, the information I share with you in this presentation is not intended to make a diagnosis or treat any health condition. It is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. For more details about the links that I mentioned, come to www.theheadachesituation.com. I am a fiercely independent neurologist who has no financial commitment to corporate medicine, drug companies, or insurance companies. I'm board certified in neurology by the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology and in the specialty of headache medicine by the UCNS. I will give you my honest perspective on different aspects of headache care filtered through my more than 40 years of experience. These are difficult times in the middle of a pandemic, lots of anxiety and worry, but this is even more pronounced in people with pre-existing anxiety. I will talk about the common issue of anxiety and how it relates to migraine and what you can do about it. It's very common in my clinic to see patients with a combination of migraine, insomnia, and anxiety. We often make the diagnosis of generalized anxiety disorder when dealing with persistent and chronic worry, currently about the pandemic, but also it could be about finances, family, health, the future, and other things which make people worry. Migraine and anxiety are closely associated if you have one, there's a good chance you may have the other. This is even more common in people with PTSD, especially in people with childhood or adult physical, sexual, or psychological abuse. Worry is common, but more so in people with anxiety. Many people with anxiety have other physical symptoms, and these migraine people are often written off as just being nervous or anxious, and although the anxiety needs attention, the diagnosis of migraine is often missed. This is especially true in settings where a medical visit is just a few minutes long and the clinician doesn't get the full story. There is no shortcut, folks. These people often feel helpless and they're not being taken seriously. Sometimes they're called hypochondriacs, which is an old term. Currently, that term is called health anxiety disorder, and it's often overused and certain clinicians are missing the real issue, which might be the migraine or the true anxiety disorder. Now, some people have OCD, which is obsessive compulsive disorder, and who are preoccupied with their health and germs. And these are hard to differentiate from everybody's fear of contagion from the current pandemic. We must be very careful before we label people because there is an overwhelming stress in everybody's life. Now, there's an overlap or comorbidity between anxiety and migraine. There was a comorbidity between these two conditions and depression. Remember, anxiety and depression are not opposites. They commonly coexist. Anxious people have trouble sleeping, which is the topic of another podcast in this series, but suffice it to say that we often see improvement in insomnia when the anxiety is better controlled, and I'm going to give you some tools later on how to deal with this. Stress plays a role and also can be driving migraines. Stress and anxiety will worsen existing migraine conditions, but people who don't have migraine are not going to suddenly get migraine when they're stressed. They may have tension-type headaches, but those are nowhere near as severe as people's migraines can be. Now, some people have social anxiety, which is actually very common, at least in my population. It's diagnosed when there's fear and worry attached to scrutiny by others and embarrassment when the person has to interact or perform in front of others. Basically, people with social anxiety don't want to be judged by others. This is very common in teenagers. And many people, as they develop in life, they find jobs which let them be isolated from others. Many people work at home, and many of these people work in IT or in web design or other such jobs where they don't have to interact with another person. 
Granted, these days with the pandemic, most people are working from home, but I think a lot of people have adapted to it because of their basic social anxiety. Now, in panic disorder, which is often overdiagnosed, the anxiety is marked by abrupt, unexpected, transient episodes of fear and physical symptoms like fast heart rate and shortness of breath. Some of these people have post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. Some of these people have this problem because of a history of life-threatening trauma or watching someone else in a life-threatening traumatic situation or from being in an abuse situation. Many of these patients I have just described have trouble dealing with migraines because it's just one more thing taxing them. Now, patients with a generalized anxiety disorder have increased risks of other mental and physical health conditions. Many of these patients have chronic pain syndromes, asthma, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or inflammatory bowel disease. Many will also have what's called fibromyalgia, which is a muscular pain syndrome. Approximately a third of people with generalized anxiety disorder will self-medicate with alcohol or drugs to reduce the symptoms of anxiety. This pattern of use is thought to contribute to the increased risk of alcohol and drug use problems among these people. Given the high rates of coexisting conditions, the management of generalized anxiety disorder requires attention to a potentially complex combination of psychological and physical symptoms, each of which may reinforce the others. It's the job of the clinician to sort through and untie these knots and to figure out what's going on. Again, this cannot be done in a five-minute office visit, as often occurs in certain primary care and in certain specialties. People with generalized anxiety disorder often have exposures to childhood adversity, like abuse, neglect, parental problems, or as grown-ups, intimate partner violence, alcoholism, or drug use. There is some solid evidence out there that there may be a genetic predisposition to anxiety disorders. Recent evidence suggests that exposure to physical punishment in childhood may be associated with an increased risk of generalized anxiety disorder in adulthood. In my own experience, I have seen in our patients many people who develop adult-onset anxiety have had horribly stressful early life experiences such as childhood abuse, teenage abuse, rape, etc. A psychological construct might be helpful when trying to explain these people. It's perhaps the idea of intolerance to uncertainty. There's a tendency to react negatively to situations that are uncertain. This is common in people with generalized anxiety disorder. It's a construct and it's a way of thinking about it, but people who have anxiety know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, how do we assess people with anxiety? People with generalized anxiety disorder generally have an affirmative response when I ask, do you worry excessively about minor matters? They will commonly say yes. That question is worth asking of patients with insomnia, people with depression, chronic GI or other pain syndromes, or any unexplained recurrent health concerns, because these people often will have anxiety, which is not necessarily the cause of these problems, but it's associated with them. In my clinic, we routinely use the GAD-7, the GAD-7, which is a short questionnaire which is used to screen for anxiety. Now, how do we manage migraine people with anxiety? We have to take into account the need for counseling, including the counseling needed to help with insomnia, and we have to find medications which can address both problems, but we have to consider counseling as a very important part of the equation. We try to avoid chronic benzodiazepine medications, in other words, addictive drugs. The benzodiazepine drugs can include Valium or Ativan, which is diazepam, or lorazepam, or other such meds in that family, which can be habit-forming. Also, some people are using chronic opioids to self-medicate their anxiety. Uh, Some of them are getting opioid painkillers from so-called pain clinics, which they try to self-medicate to forget how troubled they really are. 
Now, we especially need to avoid self-medication with alcohol and street drugs, marijuana, and other Band-Aids. When dealing with alcohol, we need to get to the basis for it and give people the tools to deal with it so that they don't slide down this slippery slope. A very important part of our plan is to push for lifestyle modifications. People who change lifestyle by improving sleep, exercise, eating regular meals, avoiding stress, and using meditation usually improve their migraines as well as their anxiety, and insomnia improves along with the anxiety if we have an effective plan going. Since insomnia is a prominent part of anxiety disorder, the patient should be encouraged to practice positive sleep hygiene behaviors. In other words, to avoid irregular sleep schedules, to avoid smoking or the use of nicotine during the evening, and to avoid alcohol before bedtime. Also, it's good to avoid prolonged use of devices that emit light, such as smartphones or laptops, television, etc., before bedtime. Now, we sometimes have to do testing in order to separate anxiety and insomnia from other conditions such as thyroid disease, people who have breathing problems. Some people stop breathing in their sleep, and that's called sleep apnea. And although it's more common to see obstructive sleep apnea in people that are obese, thinner people might also still have apnea. It could be due to central apnea where there's no obstruction. Now, medications are used for anxiety and for insomnia and for migraine. And when people are just treating anxiety, the benzodiazepine drugs, as I mentioned above, can be effective, but they are habit-forming. Other drugs like buspirone or pregabalin can also be very helpful for generalized anxiety disorder, as well as the SSRI or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, such as Celexa or Zoloft. Sometimes the serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, which are dual-action drugs, such as Effexor and Cymbalta, can be very helpful. And these are often first-line drugs for use in generalizing anxiety disorder. Obviously, you can't go out and buy these drugs yourself. You need to carefully talk to a clinician who will prescribe the meds that are appropriate for you. The response rate of these drugs is only in about the 30 to 50% range when not associated with counseling. You got to be working with a counseling person or do mindfulness, and there are many self-help programs for mindfulness out there. I'm going to give you a meditation approach later in this presentation. Psychotherapy from a counselor is also known as cognitive behavioral therapy. There also is mindfulness-based therapy, which includes acceptance and commitment, which encourages to focus on the present and try to get past the symptoms of whatever illness is troubling the person. Applied relaxation therapy is very useful, as well as certain exercises, and some people will even purchase biofeedback machines online to help them learn how to relax. It has been my experience that most people don't need the biofeedback apparatus. Those are just training wheels, which will help you to learn to relax. Most people don't need them. Now, cognitive behavioral therapy is very commonly used, and it teaches skills to manage anxiety. And we expect they would have a longer effect than medications would, because these are skills that could be used for a lifetime. In the end, the combination of counseling and medications are the best combination for the best results. Now, I'm going to give you an interesting little tidbit here, which will teach you how to relax. Uh, it's a technique uh, which was borrowed from uh, Dr. Benson, The Relaxation Response, which is an old book. It's been around a long time. And the purpose of this technique is to reduce the general stress and muscle tension due to stress. When practiced regularly, there's a gradual reduction in the occurrence of tension-type headaches and migraines and anxiety. Some people report that these techniques can relax a headache, which is in the process of starting. But at the very least, consider this as more of a preventative strategy. When people are using a cumulative relaxation technique on a daily basis, they have a cumulative benefit. Just like stress can accumulate and get you, so can these extra exercises improve things for you. 
The process is the same. So here's what you do. It's very simple. And again, this is on my website, michiganheadache.com slash relaxation.asp. The whole thing is right there. I'm just going to read it out loud to you. But if you want to read it, go to our website. So find a comfortable place and lie on your back, preferably in a darkened room. Some people use a comfortable chair, as long as you can slouch out and not be maintaining any particular posture. You want to be lying inertly. So first you start by breathing slowly in and out, saying the word one, O-N-E, as you are slowly breathing out. You can use any short syllable word that you like. Some people say hope, whatever. It doesn't matter, as long as it's the same repetitive thing. And the idea is to keep you from thinking. Some people try to visualize a tiny point of light in the distance while they're doing the breathing exercise. Now, breathing's kind of important, of course. I've been breathing all my life. I strongly recommend it. But breathing is interesting because when you're taking a breath versus letting out a breath, physiological changes happen in the body. Uh, The heart rate changes with each breath. These are all physiological phenomena, and they also have an effect on the brain. Now, once you're doing this breathing, as I described it, you need to relax your body. And this can be done in several ways. One way of doing this is to close your eyes and imagine waves of relaxation running down your body from your scalp downwards, washing out the stress. Let the waves run in time with your breathing, first washing down over your head, then your neck, then your torso and arms, and finally your legs. Feel the muscles in your body relaxing as the waves of relaxation wash over them. Now, another effect, which I have personally found more useful, is where you will just consciously tense and relax, gently tense and relax, certain muscle groups, starting from your head or from your toes. For example, flex your toes slightly and relax them. Then move your foot up and down and relax it. And gently move each body part all the way up, tightening your quadriceps, the thigh muscles, relax them, buttocks, abdomen, chest, fingers, forearms, biceps, triceps, jaw, and your eyebrows. That's a big place for tightness, by the way, is the brow. Be sure that's relaxed. And these should be very slight contractions of the muscle, which are slow and gentle, contracting as you breathe in and relaxing as you breathe out. It's an acquired skill, and it's very, very effective. And once you do it a few times, you actually develop a skill in which it works better and better each time. Pay particular attention to your stress muscles, like your trapezius muscles, between your neck and shoulders, which can be relaxed by gentle shrugging movements. A lot of people carry their tension in their neck. Once you've relaxed your muscles, continue the breathing process for 10 to 20 minutes. You should not be falling asleep. This is not a nap. One effective way to time your sessions is use use an app on your smartphone. There are timers and such. There are apps you can download, but there's no point in paying money for these things. I mentioned earlier about devices for relaxing, and these are biofeedback devices. They sell them online. There are some that deal with body temperature. Some deal with muscle tension. The simplest and cheapest are the ones that work on the galvanic skin response or GSR. That's the thing that has to do with lie detectors. It's a device where you put your fingers into this little device and it measures the impedance or electricity that passes between your fingers. And as you're relaxing, it changes the tone in the sweat glands of the fingers, which is why lie detectors are interesting. These relaxation systems, there's one called the GSR-2, Uh, biofeedback relaxation system, which can attach to your fingers. It's a small thing. It looks almost like a computer mouse. And you put in some earbuds and it emits a tone. And the more you relax, the lower the pitch will go. 
These are available online. There are many other devices, and no one is better than the others. I wouldn't spend a lot of money on it because these are just helper techniques. These, these are just training wheels. Once you've developed the technique as I described it, you're not going to need all that other stuff. Okay, now I think I've given you enough information so you realize anxiety can be managed. And it's strongly advised that if you have significant anxiety, especially the types I've described above, to talk to your physician. If it's the kind of thing which isn't responding well, or if you're on chronic benzodiazepines from your primary care doctor, that's not a good long-term solution. And at that point, you really should be referred to a professional like a psychiatrist. So thank you for listening to this podcast episode presented by the Michigan Headache and Neurology Clinic in East Lansing, Michigan. Please listen for other podcasts in the headache situation and subscribe to us. We'd appreciate it, if people like it, to rate us with five stars so we can be more easily found on searches. It helps spread the word. Remember, for more information and links, go to www.thehadachesituation.com. Thank you.